better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. And checking it twice. He's, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. nice. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, a week in health law. The 12 days of Christmas podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode during the first snowfall of December 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by the Christmas crooner himself. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Who's been naughty. Jessica Roberts is the director of the Health Law and Policy Institute and the George Butler Research Professor at the University of Houston Law Center. Big welcome back to the pod, Jessica. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. So I would say that my home state of Texas has been naughty. So uh, I'm sure as many of your listeners know, Texas led a group of states and religiously affiliated medical providers in a challenge to HHS's final rule governing Section 1557. And 1557 is the Affordable Care Act's anti-discrimination rule. And without saying too much about how I think HHS was nice in interpreting it, I will tell y'all that Section 1557 outlaws discrimination in federally funded healthcare on the basis of race, national origin, age, sex, and disability. And this complaint, led by my home state of Texas, raised several criticisms about uh, Section 1557 and its regulations. So the reason I think Texas is being naughty with respect to this particular complaint, so the things that they allege is that HHS exceeded its rulemaking authority by adopting an expansive definition of sex, and it includes some RIFRA allegations. And I think Texas is being naughty, not because I am opposed to religious rights, but I don't think that Section 1557 actually requires some of the things that the lawsuit says it does. Um, and I actually think Section 1557 already does a pretty good job protecting religious interests of healthcare providers. So Section 1557 does not force doctors to provide gender reassignment surgeries uh, to transgender patients. That's something that comes up in the complaint. Uh, and also Section 1557, the regulations explicitly acknowledge healthcare providers' rights to religious liberty. And so it would seem that some of these RIFRA protections are already built into Section 1557 and the regs. And so my concern is that Texas, by spearheading this effort, could be trying to chip away at an important new civil right when it doesn't need to. Lindsay Wiley is professor of law at American University Washington College of Law. I think, Lindsay, you were the second guest we ever had on Twill, and you've been hiding ever since, but a huge welcome back. Thanks so much. It's great to be joining you for the end of what was a fantastic year for me, if perhaps not for the country. Uh, so there's a theme to my naughty and nice list items today, which is health in all policies done right and health in all policies gone wrong. Uh, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, is on my naughty list this year um, for a proposed rule announced in November mandating that local housing agencies implement smoke-free policies within 18 months of issuance of a final rule. Uh, all lit tobacco products would be prohibited within residential units, indoor common areas, as well as outdoor areas within 25 feet um, and administrative offices. So superficially, this would seem like a positive step toward healthy housing. Um, and 
In general, smoke-free housing is something that I support, especially for the hundreds of thousands of kids who are currently exposed to harmful secondhand smoke in HUD-assisted housing. Just like residents of public housing who smoke, these non-smoking residents and children don't have the option of moving out to find a smoke-free alternative. The problem is that the move, in my opinion, is premature. The public housing agencies are going to be writing the smoke-free policy into the lease terms for residents who risk eviction uh, in, in if there's a violation, but there's nothing in place to ensure that smoking residents will have adequate access to cessation services and aids. Medicaid coverage of cessation services varies from state to state, and many smoking residents are likely to fall within the population that is newly eligible for Medicaid under the ACA. So even if they're lucky enough to be in an expansion state, and even if the ACA expansion remains in place in those states that have accepted it, these uh, these residents are likely to be required to be in a benchmark plan where coverage is even more inconsistent. For those residents who are in non-expansion states or are otherwise ineligible for Medicaid, they're entirely dependent on limited cessation programs offered by local health departments, many of which are facing budget crises. So this is a problem of bad timing. In my opinion, supportive interventions really have to precede these kind of behavioral interventions that target individual smokers. Glenn Cohen, a frequent visitor to these parts as Professor of Law and the Faculty Director at the Petri Flom Center for Health Law, Policy, Biotechnology and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Great to have you back, Glenn. Thanks for having me, Nick. My nomination for the naughty list are the reproductive medicine physicians who traveled to Mexico to engage in mitochondrial replacement therapy. They came from the United States and they went to Mexico because the regulatory landscape in the United States uh, is such that it's not clear you could perform mitochondrial replacement therapy. Congress has basically passed a bill preventing FDA from considering applications for the time being to do this. And, you know, I give these guys credit, you know, just like when I watch Kellyanne Conway on TV, I admire her ability to do things, even though I don't always love the uh, the ends that they put them to. These guys found a loophole and went for it. But the reason why it was kind of naughty of them is I think it's kind of prompted many countries around the world to now rush to develop policy in a much quicker and I will think more prohibitory and less uh, sensible sort of way and kind of, you know, emphasizes the porous nature of of our borders. And what I, you know, one thing that's interesting about it is it kind of highlights the idea of national moratorium, whether they are a thing of the past in terms of their full utility. If the reason you don't want mitochondrial replacement therapy or other high-tech reproductive technologies is you're worried about uh, polluting the germline of U.S.-based individuals, we don't want germline transmission here. I think this case very well illustrates that in a globalized world, you really have no choice. You're going to face this unless the U.S. is going to forbid children born through this process uh, from coming to our shores or from uh, reproducing with uh, Americans, ultimately the alterations we're talking about are going to make their way uh, into the U.S. gene pool. So it really puts a lot of pressure on the question about whether national law, national moratoria on something like reproduction makes sense or not. My naughty, I call thee out the health insurance industry. This time around, it wasn't 1993. Rather, for this round of health reform, you were brought in from the beginning of the ACA negotiations, and you were offered millions of new customers. This time, you didn't trot out Harry and Louise commercials in a direct attack. Instead, your work was more insidious. You could have taken a long view and eased up on the rate increases. And you didn't have to undermine the spirit of the ACA with narrow networks and stealth underwriting, with high tiering for chronic disease drugs 
to drive away higher-risk patients. And you didn't have to get all snitty when the DOJ asked questions about concentration. Worse, you forgot that ensuring health isn't the same as ensuring lives or houses or cars. It's not about underwriting. It cannot be about underwriting. Instead, it's a vehicle for healthcare financing. And if you want to stay in that game next time around, try behaving like you understand that. Elizabeth Weeks Leonard is the J. Alton Hosh Professor of Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. Big welcome back to Twill, Liz. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is a, a, my second annual Naughty and Nice show on Twill, and I'm excited to be back. For my Naughty, um, I nominate something that's been recently in the news and actually somewhat outside of my um, research interest, but something that's actually um, rather personal to me. Um, it's a follow-up on the the what I believe um, Nicole Huberfeld listed as, as her NICE, which was the Supreme Court's decision in Whole Woman Health, um, striking down certain Texas abortion laws. Well, of course, no sooner than those laws were struck down by the Supreme Court, Texas responded, and um, therefore I nominate Governor Greg Abbott of Texas on my naughty list, at the top of my naughty list, I would say. And that is because he um, supported and encouraged the passage of another piece of legislation in Texas, um, a rule that will take effect this month in December, mandating that aborted fetal tissue must be buried or cremated, um, no long, regardless of the length of time that it has been gestating. Um, ostensibly, this law was passed as a, a public health um, measure um, to um, protect the, the women, I suppose, was the was the suggestion, but clearly it's within the same vein of a, um, a restricting access um, to abortion and, and shaming women who are um, seeking those types of medical services. Um, it's an issue that's um, been haunting me, actually, as I've as since I first learned about the legislation as a human and as a woman, and quite personally as a as a woman who suffered a number of pregnancy losses. Um, the notion that there should be legislation of someone's way of dealing with a very difficult um, stage of her life and grief is is just um, quite naughty, I would say. Um, some of the interesting response to this in, in the in the um, blog sphere has been the suggestion that women should, of course, you know, send their um, their sanitary pads and tampons because they might contain aborted um, remains to the governor's office so that he can properly dispose of them and other acts of protest. Um, so again, my my suggestion um, or my nomination of Greg Abbott as on the naughty list um, comes from a, a, a more personal place rather than a scholarly place. Um, I'm not really, um, I know you have caller of have had speakers better able to comment on the constitutionality of these abortion laws. Um, but certainly on the the human gut level, um, this is on my naughty list. As for my naughty list, I've got to put Tom Price and Paul Ryan at the top of the naughty list. I'm going to give three reasons for Tom Price, our soon-to-be HHS secretary, and then uh, Paul Ryan, his soon-to-be partner, the Speaker of the House, uh, in repealing or gutting Obamacare. 
The first point I want to make with respect to Tom Price on the naughty list is that we have heard for years that the imposition of an individual mandate is something akin to uh, forcing people to do things that they don't want to do, that this is, uh, that four justices of the Supreme Court joined many uh, in the conservative legal community to say that this almost violated a constitutional principle to mandate people to have health insurance. But lo and behold, when uh, we look behind the details of the Tom Price plan for uh, replacing Obamacare, what do we find? Continuous coverage requirements, which essentially create the types of financial penalties and inconveniences that are just about tantamount to uh, a mandate for coverage. And so, you know, the, the saddest thing here is that as it so often, you know, this ended up being very much about a rhetorical point rather than something substantive about the nature of liberty that was at stake in NFIB versus Sibelius and other litigation over the constitutionality of the ACA. The second sort of naughty point I have to make about Tom Price is that clearly this is a bill that is aiming at making insurance better for the healthy and worse for the sick. And here I have to throw an extra dart at the media which tends to play the sort of greedy geezer game of saying, well, it's about you know helping the young versus the old, et cetera. But, you know, let's focus at the real ultimate effects. It's about the healthy versus the sick and about, unfortunately, comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. The most uh, pristine example of that, of course, being um, the provision for high-risk pools in prices insurance. And again, going back uh, to... Uh, uh, points that we've heard on this program over and over again with respect to things that have been tried and failed. High-risk pools had a really rough time uh, in many contexts over the past couple of decades. The price plan is going to give us a high-risk pool that's going to be funded, uh, and I, I will spare you my Dr. Evil voice, but at the rate of $1 billion per year. So if we think about that per congressional district, what is that? Maybe 10, 20 very severely chronically ill people? Um, Perhaps the idea is to set up some sort of hunger games or lottery. I don't know uh, to disperse these funds, but a plan that sort of puts forward a billion dollars for high risk pools is fundamentally unserious. My last point and my naughty point, and one I hope that is taken to heart by at least some political operatives planning along this lines of divide and conquer is we earlier talked about divide and conquer of the healthy and the sick. The divide and conquer plan for radical change for Medicare appears to be to leave the program is is for people un over 55, but to change it radically to premium support for those under 55. I just would like to lay down a marker here to say that if elderly voters or other voters over 55 say, well, I've got mine, thank goodness, let's go ahead with this and run with it, they should certainly be looking over their shoulder because there's a lot of people who, once they're told that the benefits won't be there for them, are not exactly going to be voting for candidates that are trying to preserve the benefits for those over 55. My last point, I guess, in my naughty talk today would be before we go down the primrose path of uh, divide-conquer uh, Medicare policy, we really have to think deeply, and the people that want to do that better think deeply about the degree to which any plan is sustainable when future benefits are basically made radically different than the ones that are available today. Nicole Huberfeld is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and the Ashland Spears Distinguished Research Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. So great to have you back on Twill, Nikki. It's always a thrill. Thank you so much for having me and happy holidays to everybody. Awesome. So who's been naughty and who's been nice? Well, you know me. I like to just bite off as much as I can chew. Uh, so I'd like to start with a couple of decisions that the Supreme Court came down with this year that everybody may have forgotten about already to go back to 
whole women's health, which I talked about in the Back to School show, I just want to remind everybody that the Supreme Court actually took the health of women seriously in whole women's health. It was the decision that sort of reiterated and underlined that Casey and Roe v. Wade mean what they say, that states cannot use the terminology health with a wink and a nod and pretend that closing down reproductive care clinics is actually beneficial to women's health. And the reason that I wanted to mention this is that we see uh, the word health thrown around quite a lot. Uh, States are historically responsible for the health and welfare of their populations. And we have seen some new challenges by the ACLU and other entities to state laws that very much uh, resemble the Texas laws that were stricken by the Supreme Court. Alaska, Missouri, and North Dakota are on the chopping block. Um, and, And lower federal courts seem to be taking whole women's health at face value, that if a state has said that it is regulating in the name of health, but in fact it is closing down avenues to health care, that that is something that courts will second guess. And so I think that's worth mentioning, that whole women's health seems to have some teeth. But in the same breath, Ohio just passed a 20-week abortion ban saying if there's a fetal heartbeat that a woman may not seek an abortion. And so the states will keep trying to test that fence, as it were. I would also like to remind everybody on a totally different vein, but also from the Supreme Court, that Escobar took the False Claims Act materiality standard seriously. And the reason that I want to mention this is that the False Claims Act is a very important tool in the prosecutorial toolbox. It is a law that healthcare providers fear. And it is worth noting that the Supreme Court appeared to appreciate the nuances of materiality, meaning that if a healthcare provider is violating a law but is still providing the medical services that are claimed on a particular claim, that claim isn't going to be false unless the law that is being violated is somehow material. And so what that means is that quitom relators are going to be reined in a little bit in their creativity in terms of saying, well, you violated a drug packaging law, therefore you're violating the False Claims Act or that kind of thing. And I think, too, it helps the DOJ to understand what their guide rails are in false claims prosecutions. So I think that overall it was a clarifying decision that will probably bear some fruit in the world of healthcare fraud and abuse. So I wanted to remind everyone of two Supreme Court decisions that were pretty important in healthcare this year and that have sort of fallen by the wayside. Now, if I can get meta for a moment, I would like to also note that on the nice list, we should count President Obama, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the ACA. We have 23 million individuals covered due to their efforts. 8.6 uninsurance rates are the lowest they've been in recent memory. The ACA's legislative principle of universality showed recognition that employer-based health insurance fails people who are middle class to low income in the United States. And I think it's important to remember that these were moments, if they go away, we need to know what to return to. And so on the nice side, we have the ACA succeeding on its own terms. The big goal was to make people insurable and insured, and they are. Are there problems with the law? Of course. And in fact, I would put on my naughty side that 
at the same time that Obama and HHS and the law itself succeeded on their own terms, the optics of the ACA have always been difficult. The failure to educate, I think, is part of the problem that we are facing now with the threats of repeal. That in the same moment that people gained health insurance, they understood the ACA to be the source of any problem that they had with the healthcare system, including health insurance, health care, cost of care, etc. When in fact, the problems they were dealing with were probably long entrenched problems. And so it seems to me that it returns us to some of the critiques that we've seen of the ACA in the past, which is that if you're going to have a big fight, then you should have a big change. And while the ACA had a big change in terms of the principle of universality that it implemented, it didn't change much in our healthcare non-system. And perhaps most importantly, what has never been changed is how we treat a right to medical care. We still do not have a recognized right to medical care in the United States. And until we do, we will continue to see that we have this sort of healthcare as a proxy for political football. And so I would like to add to my nice list in that vein, and more specifically, because you know I can't help but talk about Medicaid, that Louisiana expanded its Medicaid program this year and in fact did so using SNAP, meaning uh, basically food stamps, as a proxy for whether people would qualify for Medicaid and had a wildly successful, incredibly quick enrollment once they did expand. Other states like Arizona, Arkansas, Indiana, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, they toyed with their expansion. Some of them went beyond where they were before to enroll more people. And we saw that expansion continued to grow. And so depending on what we see with the ACA and whether parts of it remain, perhaps States like Indiana will offer a blueprint for what moves forward from here. I think it may be meaningful that Seema Verma, who was the architect of Indiana's Medicaid waiver, is the proposed head of CMS for a Trump administration. I think it's also notable, though, that Vice President-elect Pence met with Governor Meade in South Dakota, excuse me, um, Governor Dogard of South Dakota, and they decided after that meeting that South Dakota would not try to proceed with Medicaid expansion in its 2017 legislative session that's upcoming. So who knows what Pence said to Dalgard, but I think it's worth noting that some states are now waiting and seeing. So I don't know what we'll see in terms of Medicaid in the future, but I would also like to say in terms of my naughty list that nobody seems to remember our past. We have had attempts at Medicaid block grants, and in fact, before Medicaid was Medicaid, states did receive block grants, and the states could not afford medical assistance. That is the whole reason that we have Medicaid in the first place. So this idea idea that's coming from Paul Ryan and uh, nominee Price that we should have block grant Medicaid is frankly absurd. You will find that the states generally could not afford that kind of move. And so what it would mean is either the states are bankrupting themselves in the name of trying to protect their citizens or people will simply not have health insurance. The idea that tens of millions of people could lose health insurance if the ACA is repealed is real. Finally, in my naughty list, I would like to mention, I think it is time for us to rethink federalism as a key health policy move. This idea that we should return health care to the state so that states can choose what happens to their citizens, that really only benefits federal lawmakers that oppose government. And it will only benefit individuals in the handful of states that were willing to have a generous local health care program like Massachusetts or Minnesota or California. 
any other states are not going to engage in the kind of experiment that we tend to think of when we think of the experiment of the states. And I would just like to put out there that, frankly, the states are not engaging in randomized control trials. So now let's get some ideas as to who should be on the nice list. So on my nice list, like Lindsay, I also have a bit of a theme. My theme is Section 1557. I I think HHS was nice in trying to offer some clarity. This new healthcare civil right draws from existing statutes. So Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, Section 504 of the Rehab Act, the Age Discrimination Act, and Title IX of the Education Amendments Act. And there's some ambiguity about how this kind of hodgepodge new civil right is going to apply. And HHS was nice in adopting some expansive interpretations to give folks robust protections. So in terms of the covered entities, the regulations are pretty clear that uh, covered entities in this case include health insurance. And this is pretty exciting because we haven't had good health insurance and discrimination protections in the past. And also the regulations make it really clear that Section 1557 actually applies to all of a covered entity's operation. So it doesn't just apply to the part that gets federally funded, uh, that gets federal financial assistance. So that's exciting that it would apply to the entire uh, extent of a covered entity. And also kind of as I previewed in my naughty segment, uh, the regulations adopt an expansive definition of sex. So the definition of sex under the regulations in Section 1557 includes not just biological sex, but also sex stereotyping, gender expression, and gender identity. And so this could make it a really meaningful new civil right. And so I think that that was very, very nice of HHS. So I'm sticking with my theme of health and all policies generally and healthy healthy housing in particular. The Department of Housing and Urban Development is also on my nice list for another new rule, this one proposed in August, to set a lower threshold for elevated blood lead levels that trigger investigation of lead hazards in a housing unit and possible remediation by the housing provider. The proposed threshold would bring the HUD's rule into alignment with CDC's guideline, lowering the threshold from 20 micrograms of lead per deciliter, which was far too high, to 5 micrograms per deciliter. Of course, HUD is quick to point out that even before this change, HUD-assisted housing is already less likely to contain lead hazards than unassisted low- and middle-income housing, but the currently applicable threshold is so high that it impedes progress toward eliminating lead exposure in publicly assisted housing and the related economic disparities in lead poisoning and all of the lasting consequences that flow from that exposure for children, for their families and their communities. There are still lots of inadequacies in HUD's approach. Uh, Even if the lower threshold is implemented, it doesn't apply to all forms of assisted housing. Um, And even more importantly, a child under six still has to be lead poisoned to trigger an investigation and potentially order a mediation by the provider. So it's still a very reactive approach. But I do think it's a step in the right direction to align our housing policies with CDC guidelines that are evidence-based. And with a neurosurgeon poised to take over at HUD, it'll be interesting to see how these health-focused public housing rules fare in the new administration. In terms of my nice list, I just want to thank the journalists at the Wall Street Journal, Stat News, New York Times, etc., 
who've done a really good job in uncovering some very troubling uh, trends toward uh, scandal, towards fraud, towards just misleading bad care, uh, both in the pharma industry, in the device industry, etc. I think that the exposure of Theranos was fantastic to see, particularly before, say, a mass market started investing in that. Um, I thought that the attention to Zenefits and some other uh, Silicon Valley firms was really important. And I do think that, you know, that one of the things we're really going to need to rely on ever more over the next uh, few years is going to be a very strong, energized uh, fourth estate. And, you know, Stat News uh, is a really fantastic uh, new contributor in this area, as well as ProPublica, who's Charles Ward's team we had here. So just a word, I guess, that if you're feeling charitable at the end of the year, try to, say, throw a few bucks in those uh, uh, companies' directions with a subscription or something, because I think this type of accountability journalism will be all the more important in coming years. So as to my nice, at first I thought I might vote for the HHS Office for Civil Rights for getting the Section 1557 regulations out the door. But in the end, I went for Andy Slavitt and his crew at CMS for all their work over the last year. It can't be easy working under that pressure with targets on your backs the whole time, but they kept things together and produced a range of actions to be proud of. There are lots of highlights, but some of my short list are macro MIPS. It's probably only a half-baked approach to value, but it's a first step, and I hope it gets to play out. Second, they did what they could with the Medicaid expansion hand that they were dealt with. They showed flexibility with Section 1115 expansion waiver requests, but drew some important lines in the sand. Finally, I know that in the great scheme of things, this November's long-term care facilities final rule doesn't amount to much. But CMS took note of some strong criticisms of the NPRM, and they came back and they banned pre-dispute arbitration agreements. A few courts have begun to turn over this particular rock. For example, the Kentucky Supremes last year in the Extended Care case. The New York Times, most of you know, ran an admirable series of critical articles, and both the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the FCC have been looking at the issue. Pre-dispute arbitration agreements are just wrong. Of course, someone is always willing to play the Grinch, and in a last move to get included on the naughty list, a Mississippi federal court judge in a somewhat bizarre opinion, enjoined the CMS rule. Hopefully the new year will bring better news. So my nomination are Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, the creators of HBO's Westworld. So while its entertainment value was not always quite as high as Game of Thrones, although towards the end I think it got really quite good, what was most interesting about the show is the way in which it kind of engaged very indirectly, I think, but in very interesting ways with a lot of bioethics questions. So questions about what makes somebody a uh, person, uh, in particular whether it's something like the capacity of suffering, whether it's the ability to remember one's past self, whether it's having uh, goals and desires and actions that are not controlled by an external person, uh, questions about potentiality and how to think about things that are potential uh, persons but not quite yet persons. So many of the hosts uh, in the show don't want to have too many spoilers uh, and what violence against them is like. Ideas about what counts as a life not worth living and what instances would it be uh, a violation of a moral duty to create an entity that has a life that is quite bad and what makes a life quite bad. Um, questions about responsibility. There's a lot of killing done to and by 
the entities in Westworld and whether we think that they could be tried, for example, or rather the fact that somebody else controls uh, their actions, at least part of the time, uh, means that there is no culpability and how to think about how that implies, what implications that has for human beings that are controlled uh, by so many other kinds of things that determine how we make decisions and the like. Uh, and also um, questions about consent and about uh, morally uh, interesting or morally ambiguous entities and consent, how to think about, for example, uh, sex with robots, uh, how to think about sex with people who are uh, capable of neither giving nor denying consent, uh, and also the lines between robots and human beings and animals, whether to think about the animals in Westworld, the animal robots different from the humanoid robots. So I loved the show for its entertainment value, but also for all the interesting and cool questions it prompted. My nice list, um, who's at the top of my nice list or what's at the top of my nice list in health law for 2016, I would nominate um, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. Um, the final rules enacting Section 1557 were enacted in May of um, this year. And that law, that provision of the Affordable Care Act, is um, extends existing federal anti-discrimination laws into health insurance specifically. So that is existing federal laws um, regarding race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability discrimination now apply specifically to HHS-funded or administered health programs or activities, including health insurance marketplaces um, or exchanges and all of the plans offered by insurers that participate in those marketplaces. Um, this particular provision of the Affordable Care Act um, has been, uh, at least the final rules of it, have been long awaited, six years since the passage of the ACA, and are and, and is um, significant for in, inserting this notion of anti-discrimination in health insurance and in federal health care programs specifically in a very um, broad brush way. So that's, a, that's an excellent development. It's also very much in line with a um, a larger research project of mine, along with Professor Jessica Roberts at the University of Houston. Um, she and I are writing a book on healthism or health status discrimination. And this provision of the Affordable Care Act is, is very much in keeping and very much in line with our project and the notion that um, individuals should not be discriminated against in their access to health insurance and health care um, for various reasons that you can read about in our book once it is published by Cambridge University Press. Um, this uh, The law doesn't ex meet all of the, um, the problems that we have identified and that we describe in the book and um, other commentators have also suggested that it might not be as broad in scope. But some of the um, developments that um, and some of the, the really positive parts of it under the um, the rule issued this year, particularly were the um, administration's interpretation of sex discrimination to include sexual um, identity. As a result, a number of insurers have um, changed their policies with respect to coverage of um, sex reassignment surgery, and there's some ongoing litigation about that, particularly a, a case um, out of Texas, Franciscan Alliance. Um, 
that um, about whether that's a proper interpretation of the term of, of sex um, discrimination. Um, there's also a case pending now at the Supreme Court in a different context um, re- regarding um, a, a students, a transgendered student's access to um, bathroom facilities at his school. Gavin Grimm is the name of the, the litigant there, um, which would be telling um, perhaps on this uh, question under the Affordable Care Act and the administration's interpretation there as well. So that said, I would say that Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act and the implementing rules are on my nice list. Unfortunately, I think I have to drop um, a pretty hefty footnote, which is to say we don't know the fate of this provision, much less um, many other parts of the Affordable Care Act under the new presidential administration um, beginning in 20. Um, 17 and and certainly the the anti-discrimination provisions and particularly the extension of the law to um, sexual identity are um, probably at the top of the chopping block um, for the Trump administration and only time will tell unfortunately whether this nice item that I identify is um, something that we had briefly on the books and we'll lose again very quickly. Finally, a real treat at this time of the year is to uh, be sitting around the the glowing fire, trying to remember uh, where you uh, you kept the spare light bulbs for the treat, and then the the doorbell goes, and outside is that lovely group of carolers uh, willing to serenade you for a cup of hot chocolate, or there lies the fantasy. So, if you're in that fantasy world, who would you like to see outside your front door this Christmas or this holiday? Well, I personally would like to see Glenn Cohen serenading me outside of my door because I'm sure he would have an amazing holiday outfit and a fantastic singing voice. I would like to see what color glasses he has on. Probably red, maybe with some fun adornments. So that's one person I'd like to see caroling outside my front door. Uh, On a more serious note, uh, uh, I was thinking Eileen Hanrahan, who is the supervisory civil rights analyst uh, in the Office of Civil rights uh, in HHS who oversaw the section 1557 regulations this year. So what I'd like to do if I saw Eileen at my door is, was welcome her in and give her a cup of hot cocoa and uh, ask her a few things about what she thinks about the future of this healthcare civil right. Uh, so some of the things that I think are interesting in terms of how section 1557 will play out is are they expecting a lot of claims related to reproductive health care uh, as well as transgender issues because we have this new sex discrimination protection when we haven't had any sex discrimination, uh, anti-discrimination health care protections in the past. Also, I'd be curious if she thinks that RIFRA will end up being the exception that threatens to gut the rule. Are we going to see more and more challenges and we'll just sort of chip away at what we have? Um, I'd also like to talk to her about how they might handle some of the intersectional claims. So what happens if you have two different processes working and you have someone alleging that they face discrimination in healthcare based not just on age, but also on race or disability and whether or not they expect an influx of disparate impact claims. So those are claims for unintentional discrimination. And we saw that door close at least with the, with the context of race and national origin in the past. And so now that we're opening that door, you know, our, what does she expect to see? 
My hope for a caroler um, is actually related to another podcast I love to listen to called Radio Open Source, which is uh, Chris Lydon, and he had on Simon Shama. And Shama was someone who uh, was asked to reflect on the upcoming uh, Trump years, etc. And he said he wished that Trump were visited, like the Ebenezer Trump were visited by something like uh, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And when I think about uh, that particular dynamic uh, in the healthcare world, I was recently uh, reading a story by Eric Topol, who's a real thought leader on the future of like digital health, M health, etc. And this is a space where I think a lot of the disruptors like to imagine a future world where, say, your smartphone app substitutes for your doctor or there's sort of radical disruption uh, to the established order. And I think some of Topol's earlier stuff was going in that direction, but he recently had a piece in the Washington Post where he talked about his uh, knee care and how he was effectively saved by a physical therapist who noted that, you know, what was often being uh, proffered as a type of care that would be like, say, the standard care and the best for most people wasn't necessarily the best for him. And so I think in terms of, you know, this uh, visit, this is sort of a reversal of the uh, old uh, Dickens uh, Scrooge dynamic, where it's actually the care of the past, something that's, say, a little bit more personalized, personal, that ended up saving uh, Topol from a lot of pain that was the result of what lots of people bill as the care of the future, that is uh, complete adherence to clinical practice guidelines or other sorts of ways of uh, approaches to what are sometimes called cookbook medicine. So <laughs> that would be my rather bank shoddy uh, attempt to give a, uh, a caroler that I'd like to hear from. But I think that, you know, listening to the news and uh, the uh, description of the healthcare system from Eric Topol and his evolution over the past five years would be some cheering and interesting perspective for all of us. I'm going to go with Tim Minchin, comedian, actor, composer, singer, songwriter, pianist. Um, we saw Matilda again. I saw it with my youngest daughter in 2016, and she absolutely fell in love with musical theater as a result. And I'm looking forward to seeing Groundhog Day in 2017 with my older daughter. Um, I'll add in a sneaky extra naughty list item somewhat obliquely and say that if Tim came over for a sing-along at my house, maybe we could brainstorm a bit about how to use his dazzling songwriting skills to promote scientific literacy or at least survive scientific illiteracy uh, with our sense of humor intact in the new administration. First of all, I'm going to assure Jessica that while the outfit would be fabulous, the voice certainly would not. So I'm going to suggest nobody invite me to Carol. But in terms of who I would like to have Carol, the answer is Representative Tom Price, soon to be HHS uh, Secretary, assuming the nomination goes through. But I have a very specific Carol I want to request from him, which is to sing all 2,700 and so pages of the Affordable Care Act. Or if he prefers and he can do it, he can only sing the sections he wants to repeal and change, because I hope that'll incentivize him to make them shorter, the repeals. The person I would most like singing carols outside my door sometime this holiday season is Uwe Reinhardt, the Princeton economist. His words are always so smart, so carefully chosen. And into my personal abyss of despair of a couple of weeks ago, he lobbed a perfectly wonderful piece he'd written for Vox. 
Republicans can repeal Obama, he said, but they can't repeal the logic of health insurance. And if you want to read something truly prescient, go back to his 2010 health affairs piece in which he talks of, quote, the American plebs' dreams of a political messiah willing to build for them their perfect health system. The list that that political messiah is given in that piece would be wonderful if sung out loud. My pick for caroling would be a barbershop quartet of Kate McKinnon, Amy Poehler, Hillary Clinton, and Gloria Steinem, with Kate McKinnon and Amy Poehler, of course, dressed as Hillary Clinton. We could talk about what went wrong. We could laugh about it. And Gloria Steinem would remind us of the lessons of the past and how to stay calm moving into the future. You know, I, I'm sure it's uh, hackneyed at this point, but I just, I gotta have the Obamas come for one last beautiful Christmas card before my house. It's really the end of an era and a very lovely era, and I would like nothing more than to have the Obama family carol me this holiday season. We'll miss them, and we'll miss the grace and dignity that, that President Obama and his family brought to our nation and that office. And that was the festive year in health law. A great big thank you to all of our contributors. It was so great uh, having uh, such good friends uh, back on the show. We post our festive show notes at twill.com. Uh, you can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. And thank you, dear listener, for uh, uh, hanging in with us uh, this year. Hopefully your holidays will be good and next year will be even better. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Have a legally interesting but healthy week and frank it's been a great year thank you for everything that you've done oh thank you nick happy holidays everyone